Welcome to the Clandestine Radio Podcast, Season 2. Good evening, curious minds out there across the internet, and welcome to Season 2 of the Clandestine Radio Podcast. As always, I'm your host, DJ Joshua. Thank you guys so much for joining us for Season 2. I'm very excited. I've got some great stuff in store for all of you this season, and I'm incredibly grateful to all of you for deciding to join me once again as we take a look at some of the craziest stories that I've ever encountered in my 20 years of writing and researching. And while last season was focused primarily, at least, in exposing the truth, founding some of the biggest conspiracies that uh, I've covered over the years, and rest assured, there's more of that that's to come this season, so don't worry about that. But in season two, we're going to dive more into the unknown, and the unsolved, and the esoteric, and the paranormal. Such as tonight's story, which actually involves a bit of all of those things kind of rolled into one, as we take a look at the darker side of the music industry in Season 2, Episode 1, Souls for Gold. The Dark Side of the Spotlight. Before going down this rabbit hole, we truly can't discuss any kind of devilish deals, I guess, without at least mentioning uh, Johann Faust, who was an actual person, but uh, the stories and the, and the whole Faustian bargain thing that you've probably heard about um, was actually a work of fiction, I mean, for the most part. But he was a German erudite and who was dissatisfied with his life, but before ending it, he decides to contact the devil. He makes a deal at the crossroads uh, in exchange for his soul for all the worldly knowledge and physical pleasures. And as I'm sure that you can guess, it does not go well for him. Um, well, I mean, in some of the versions, there it's been told and retold um, tons of times throughout history. But in some versions, he has uh, this lady called Gretchen and her innocence it redeems him in the end and he ends up being able to go to heaven but in a lot of them he's uh, irrevocably we shall say corrupted and he believes that for his sins he cannot be redeemed and at the end of it the devil carries him off to hell but this is one of the uh, you know there were things before this to some degree but I, I believe that this is kind of one of the main early works that really popularized the whole making a deal with the devil and where we get the whole Faustian deal and, and bargain and stuff that is kind of entered into our zeitgeist and vernacular to some degree. Um, 
So I just felt it was important to kind of preface everything that I'm about to say by kind of mentioning that story and how this goes back much further than everything that we're about to talk about, actually. And so with that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into part one, The Devils in the Details. On a warm summer's night in 1713, Italian composer Giuseppe Tartini laid down for what he no doubt expected to be just another night of slumber. As Giuseppe laid there sleeping, he began to dream. This was no ordinary dream though. This dream would change the course of his life and leave a lasting impression on the music industry to this day. As he laid in bed, he noticed a figure among the shadows of his room, one that he couldn't quite make out. As he strained his eyes to see beyond the foot of his bed, with only a small beam of moonlight to aid him, a sense of unease began to creep up his spine. Before he could bolt from his bed, certain that he wasn't alone, the shadowy figure stepped forward into the light at the end of the bed, making himself known. It was none other than the devil himself, of course, and he had a proposition for young Giuseppe. For, but the price of his soul, he would be Tartini's servant and teacher, showing him all that there was to know about music. The pact was soon sealed, and the devil gave Tartini a lesson in all there was to know about music. At the end of this music lesson, Tartini handed the devil his violin, curious to know if he could really play the way that he had described. The following is in Tartini's own words, is what occurred next. How great was my astonishment on hearing a sonata so wonderful and so beautiful played with such great art and intelligence as I had never even conceived in my boldest flights of fantasy. I felt enraptured, transported, enchanted. My breath failed me. I awoke. I immediately grasped my violin in order to retain, in part at least, the impression of my dream. In vain, the music which I at this time composed is indeed the best that I ever wrote, and I still call it the devil's trill, but the difference between it and that which had so moved me is so great that I would have destroyed my instrument and have said farewell to music forever if it had been possible for me to live without the enjoyment it affords me." End quote. So difficult and ahead of its time was this piece of music that scholars believe it couldn't have been composed when he said, and was more likely to have been written around the 1740s at the earliest. This piece would go on to amaze and challenge violinists to this day and mark the first time in recorded history that a musician would credit the devil for their work. However, as we're about to see, it would certainly not be the last. While there's no doubt its roots extend much further back, shortly after the emancipation of African Americans in the US, a new style of music began its storied rise from out of the American South. One place stood out as a hotbed of talent and creativity in those days, and that would be the Mississippi Delta. This would of course give rise to none other than the Delta Blues, a regional variant of country blues that features guitar and harmonica prominently, as well as slide guitar stylings. Delta Blues would become a major influence for other genres and arguably served as the necessary building blocks for rock and roll, hard rock, and even heavy metal, to be honest, all of which pull from sounds and techniques that were first popularized by it. While many amazing artists helped pioneer this style, few would cause such a stir as Tommy and Robert Johnson. Though they were not related, and not known to have ever even crossed paths that I know of or was able to find anyway, both men would have the same story attributed to them, and oddly enough, these days, most people don't even know who Tommy Johnson is. 
Uh, they pretty much just know about Robert Johnson and think that that's just his story. But if, if you think back, um, if you saw Oh Brother Where Art Thou, great movie. If you haven't seen it, you definitely need to go watch it now. The Tommy that's in that is actually based on Tommy Johnson. You know, of course, it's all work of fiction. But his story, it began from Reverend Liddell Johnson, who is Tommy's brother. And he's most likely the originator of this tale. Though, according to him, it was Tommy's own story. While it's been said that Tommy did, in fact, cultivate a somewhat sinister persona to help enhance his fame, and there's no direct quotes from him or in his music that, I guess, directly give any credence to the story, his brother would start to tell the tale after Tommy's death. However, according to Liddell, Tommy stated that the reason for his talent was a pact that he made with the devil saying in an interview that Tommy told him, if you want to learn to play anything, you take your guitar to a crossroads a little before midnight. Start playing a piece, sitting there by yourself. You have to go by yourself, and you have to be sitting there playing a piece. A big black man will walk up there and take your guitar, and he'll tune it. Then he'll play a piece and hand it back to you. That's the way I learned to play anything I want. Tommy was no doubt a prolific performer and exceptional musician. He was among the first to popularize performing tricks with the guitar while playing it, often playing behind his head, between his legs, kicking it up in the air and catching it while he was playing. Uh, he was uh, one of the original showmen. As influential as Tommy was, Robert Johnson would become the better known of the two. Although his recording career lasted only seven short months, he is recognized as one of the masters of Delta Blues, one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century actually and perhaps the first ever real rock star. The story of his pact with the devil was first attributed to blues musician Sun House, who said when he met Robert, he was embarrassingly bad at guitar, quote unquote. Shortly after this meeting, Robert would move from the area of Robbinsville to Martinsville, where he would start perfecting his playing, aided by Ike Zimmerman a musician who was rumored, at least, to have learned to play supernaturally by visiting graveyards at night. Which, what a freaking rock star way to learn something, right? When Robert would return to Robinsonville two years later, he seemed to be miraculously better and to have acquired a guitar technique with abilities in both guitar playing and songwriting that would become legendary. It said he had an uncanny ability to build rapport with any audience, aided by his ability to pick up and play songs upon a single listen. He had no trouble giving an audience what they wanted. The exact same story associated with Tommy would be applied to Robert as well, bolstered by his songs with the devil in the name and lyrics or in the theme, which he wrote, performed, and recorded during his short life. Along with being a talented musician, Robert was also known to have a way with the ladies, which probably helped the legend along a little and would likely be his undoing, when in 1938 he would allegedly make moves on the wife of a roadhouse owner where he was performing, so the story goes. Later that night, he would drink from an open bottle of whiskey he was offered, believed to have been from the owner himself or his wife. Shortly after, he would fall ill and have to be helped back to his room. It's said, though disputed by some, that he would languish there for three days before passing away from poisoning. While much of his story comes from conflicting oral traditions and various biographers, many of whom disagree on many of the details, one fact remains irrefutable about his death. 
It came just a few months after his 27th birthday, making him the very first member of what would become known as the Forever 27 Club. Which segues beautifully right into part two, Forever 27. Within a three year span, between the years of 1969 and 1971, the world would lose four incredible musicians, all who skyrocketed to the top of their profession, becoming the very definition of rock stars. There were several lesser known musicians as well who would also pass at 27 in those years, such as Canned Heats, ironically a name taken from one of Tommy Johnson's songs by the way, uh, Canned Heat Blues. Lead guitarist Alan Wilson, dead at 27 from suspected overdose, in September of 1970, as well as many more before the end of 1978, all gone at 27 years of age. However, let's focus in on those first four that I've mentioned for the moment. Brian Jones, who was the original founder, leader, and rhythm and occasionally lead guitarist for the Rolling Stones, was by 1969 finding himself more and more at odds with the band. Keith Richards and Mick Jagger were taking more and more control over the band's direction at the time, and due to Jones falling further and further into the pit of drugs and alcohol addiction, he had started being a bit of a liability to the studio, shall we say. While his death was ruled to have been by, quote, misadventure, I mean, is there a more rock and roll way to die than misadventure? Because he was found drowned at the bottom of his pool while heavily intoxicated, his death has remained a bit suspicious and left a dark stain on rock music at the time. It's a fairly interesting story and one I may touch more on and others in the next week's uh, BTR, but for now, just know he was also 27, of course, and several people close to him believe foul play was involved. Keith Richards has even been quoted as saying, quote, I don't know what happened, but there was some nasty business going on. End quote. In the early morning hours of Friday, September 18, 1970, James Marshall Hendricks, better known as Jimmy, would lay down to get some rest in a London hotel room, a rest he would never wake up from. While the timeline of events leading up to his death is fairly well known and documented, many questions have persisted since his passing, which was ruled an accident as he had asphyxiated on his own vomit after allegedly taking multiple strong sleeping pills. The evening prior, he had made a call to his manager, Mike Jeffrey, about ending their business relationship and going in a different direction. He had also reportedly had a disagreement with his then-girlfriend, Monica Daneman, while at a party hosted by his label and business associates, primarily Pete Cameron. In short, the story goes that they left the party after the disagreement, returning to her house around 3 a.m., where Jimmy would ask Monica for one of her sleeping pills, which she says that she refused. She says that she took one herself and laid down, and upon waking up four hours later, Hendricks was fast asleep with no signs of distress. She then left to run to the store for smokes, and when she returned, she found him impossible to wake up. So she called the paramedics, but apparently left, as when the paramedics arrived at 11.27 a.m., they were met with a wide-open door, drawn curtains, Hendrix deceased, and covered in vomit, and Monica nowhere to be found. Interesting footnote to all of this is that the manager he was in the process of leaving held a life insurance policy on Hendrix worth millions. 
as is a common practice actually in the industry. It's to recoup losses owed should an artist pass before repaying their label debts that has made many an artist worth more to the label's dead than alive. Hendrix was, of course, 27 years old at the time of his death. 16 days later, on October 4th, 1970, and half a world away in Los Angeles, California, the music world would lose yet another star in their prime, when Janis Joplin would also be found in a hotel room from a suspected heroin overdose. She was clutching her cigarettes in one hand and the change from buying them in the other. The official story goes that after injecting some, quote, unusually potent, end quote, heroin, she went down to the hotel lobby and purchased a pack of smokes, then walked back up to her room, where she would apparently lie down on the bed and pass away still clutching both of those items. She would later be found by her road manager, John Cook, after she failed to show up to a recording session. This story is refuted by her best friend, Peggy Concerta, who in her memoir, I Ran Into Some Trouble, recounted sharing the same batch with Janice and doesn't believe that it was particularly that strong. She would also argue, as an overdose survivor herself, that she doesn't believe she could have actually taken a lethal dose and then walked all the way down to the lobby for some smokes and back, saying that she more than likely would have just, quote, crumpled to the floor like how they found Philip Seymour Hoffman, end quote. Whatever happened that day, one thing is for sure. The world of music lost another of its stars when Janis Joplin too would be pronounced dead at 27 years old. In the early morning slash late night, leading into the 3rd of July of 1971, James Douglas Morrison, aka Jim, would supposedly wake from his slumber feeling ill. He would make his way into the bathroom of a Paris apartment that he shared with then-girlfriend Pamela Corson and lay down in a warm bath while Pamela would go back to bed. She would awaken a little after 6 a.m. and upon realizing Jim wasn't back in there yet, she would call his name getting no answer. According to Pam, she would return to the bathroom finding Jim submerged in the tub with a smile on his face. At first she thought it was a joke, but upon shaking him and getting no response, she realized this wasn't the case and called the fire department and then the police. There were several conflicting accounts regarding how Jim had not only ended up in that tub, but how he truly died. Because what I just told you is part of Pamela's story, and only from her point of view. A doctor would be called to the apartment during the following three days as his body remained there, wrapped in plastic and packed in dry ice, while the funeral arrangements were being made. The doctor would sign a death certificate listing the cause of death as heart failure, but no autopsy was ever performed. Pam would let her state that she didn't remember the doctor's name, and the signature was illegible. Those facts, though admittedly very odd, don't come close to scratching the surface of all the high strangeness and conflicting stories surrounding Jim's passing. From his possible death the night before at the Rock and Roll Circus nightclub, to possible overdoses at various places for varying reasons, to a massive cover-up, potential murder plot, all the way to faking his death, there is definitely no shortage of speculation and confusion that truly muddy the waters of Jim Morrison's death at 27. So much so, it honestly could require, deservingly so, an entire episode to really begin to cover it. For the time being, however, just know that by most accounts anyways, the enigmatic and charismatic Lizard King rounds out our look 
and four legendary artists to join the 27 Club in just three short years, with his passing on July 3, 1971, at 27. With just those four in mind, and there are many, many others, let's see what we can come up with to help make sense of all this loss. It was their deaths that would lead to the belief that deaths were simply more common at that age. Interestingly though, statistical studies have failed to find any unusual pattern of musicians dying at that age, comparing it to equal increases at age 25 and 32, and a BJM study noted in 2011 that young adult musicians have a higher death rate than the rest of the young adult population, concluding that, quote, fame may increase the risk of death among musicians, but this risk is not limited to age 27. So, what is it then? The belief of Robert Johnson's death at the time was that his alleged deal with the devil had come due, with people pointing to such songs as Hellhound on My Trail as evidence that he knew that his deal was almost up. While our last four all died under what could be considered suspicious circumstances, no overly obvious signs of similar deals have really ever been discussed. Two other significant members of this club, Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse, who both also died under somewhat suspicious circumstances, also would seem outwardly absent of any such deals. While both of them, Cobain in particular, deserve entire episodes to really cover, for the purposes of our discussion, just know that Kurt's passing renewed interest in the phenomenon, and Amy's reminded the world that the club was apparently still accepting members. So, if it isn't simply their age that's so dangerous, and surely they didn't all cut some nefarious deal with Satan himself, who just has a particular affinity for collecting souls at 27 apparently. And fame alone seems to be a flimsy excuse for all the coincidences involved. What else might tie them together in some way? Well, what if I told you that the phenomenon of stars dying at early ages and under strange circumstances extends far beyond the 27 Club, and in fact, Many other types of artists aside from musicians have also died under mysterious circumstances, with odd similarities, all around the age of 30. While this trend also extends back much further, the somewhat recent deaths of Heath Ledger and Brittany Murphy also seem to follow a similar pattern of those of the 27 Club. Strangely enough, there often seems to be a media buildup around these figures that leads up to their deaths where there is a reporting of odd behavior and personal problems, almost as if in an effort to seemingly explain away what was to come next. Almost as if they knew what was coming. While the average person would be forgiven for thinking this next theory is completely ridiculous, to those familiar with or initiated in the occult, it may make all the sense in the world especially considering that the magical potency of a human sacrifice has been recognized and documented by the rituals of many other ancient civilizations and secret societies. And what would be more powerful than a charismatic star being risen up to fame in order to later sacrifice them, creating some sort of sick worldwide mega-ritual? As crazy as it sounds, which would also be the desired cover for such affairs, there is actually more evidence to support this theory than one might think. In a book titled Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare by Michael A. Hoffman II. He writes that in relation to mega-rituals, some murders are ritual murders involving a cult protected by the U.S. government and the corporate media, with strong ties to the police. Such killings are actually intricately choreographed ceremonies, performed first on a very intimate and secret scale among the initiates themselves, 
in order to program them, then on a grander scale, amplified incalculably by the electronic media. In the end, what we have is a highly symbolic ritual, working to broadcast to millions of people, a satanic inversion, a black mass, where the quote pews are filled by the entire nation in which humanity is brutalized and abased in this, the Negretto phase of the alchemical process. In Hollywood, mind you, witches would make their wands from the wood of holly trees, and has long been revered for its magical and spell-enhancing powers. The subjects of these rituals are often mind-controlled, and their deaths are often announced in some way or another through symbolic works, much like predictive programming, or the belief that for the rituals to work, they have to first inform the intended targets of what's to come, hence why the TV and movies tend to predict events, quote-unquote, or get much correct before it occurs. In the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, the final movie that Heath Ledger would appear in, the theme of sacrifice was extremely important. Such as in one scene, we see the images of three celebrities who died young, Rudolf Valentino, James Dean, and Princess Diana, who definitely, definitely deserves a full episode for the record. Seeing these pictures, a woman says to Johnny Depp, who was one of Heath Ledger's many like replacement stand-ins, basically, quote, these people, they're all dead. To which Depp replies, yes, but immortal nonetheless. They won't get old or fat. They won't get sick or feeble. They are beyond fear because they are forever young. The gods and you can join them. Your sacrifice must be pure. Lines originally intended to be said by Ledger. In the case of Brittany Murphy, she appeared in several strange photo shoots before her untimely death, some of which overtly seemed to allude to monarch mind control and occult rituals. Her husband, a British film writer, eight years her senior, would also die, under the same unusual circumstances, mind you, a mere five months after her. Several people close to the couple would describe their relationship as oftentimes awkward, with the speculation that he was in fact some sort of handler, brought up on numerous occasions, though supposedly jokingly. In her last interview, one where she seemed shaken, or perhaps just sick, she poses the odd question to the interviewer, asking if she can have her hair in the next life. Not to get ahead of myself too much here, but you can also find many photos of her sporting the one-eye symbolism, as well as doing the Masonic hush finger over her lips. In Amy Winehouse's death, there are also similar threads. A neighbor who was interviewed who claimed hearing screaming, howling, and some sort of drum beating, end quote, coming from her house the night she died. In a somewhat prophetic sculpture done of Amy in 2008, it depicts her laying on the floor lifeless. Laying next to her is a Minnie Mouse mask, one of the many alleged symbols of Illuminati monarch mind control. The title of the work is The Only Good Rock Star is a Dead Rock Star by Marco Perego. At this point, I suppose I hinted and tiptoed around this part long enough. So, I may as well wrap this theory up by explaining briefly, as would take us quite a while to really cover all of this topic to be honest, what exactly is monarch mind control and how does it potentially relate to some of these deaths. Monarch programming is a method of mind control used primarily by intelligence organizations for covert purposes. It is supposedly a continuation of something we discussed way back in episode 1, MKUltra a mind control program developed by the CIA and tested on the military and non-tending citizens from mental patients to prisoners. 
I've covered MKUltra in some detail in the Season 1 Prelude episode, and I may dig a little bit deeper into it with all of you in the future, but that's something. if that's something that you want to hear, um, just let me know. You, you know the best ways to do it. For now, let's dig into Project Monarch a little bit more. Project Monarch is a DoD codename assigned a subsection of the CIA's Operation Artichoke, which as we've discussed would later become MKUltra. It was officially dedicated in the early 60s. Uh, exact information on this is highly controlled and it's often contested and I can't really give you a whole lot to genuinely prove that this even exists, but it, it's used to connect a lot of dots. You'll hear it frequently talked about in conspiracy circles. And after MKUltra, it's really not that hard to believe, I suppose. But it is a genealogical approach to define transgenerational behavior modification through trauma-based psychological mind control. And this all goes back to research conducted by top uh, SS Nazi scientists and project was led by Joseph Mengele between 1927 and all the way up until 1941 and came into the U.S.'s hands as a byproduct of Operation Paperclip and or DOD Project 63. Mengele was, of course, a physician working in concentration camps and first gained notoriety as being one of the doctors who would choose which prisoners would be killed or sent to labor camps, but would go on to earn his more notorious title, the Angel of Death, for performing grisly human experiments on prisoners. One element, which is still classified by our government to this day, was his extensive work into pioneering trauma-based mind control techniques. For now, we won't get into why all of that is still classified and why our government chose to extract and protect around 5,000 Nazis at the end of the war, many of which were killers, torturers, and mutilators of innocent humans, and not the Warner Von Braun-style rocket scientist superstars that we get told about all the time. From here forward, I need to preface this information as, quote, allegedly, okay? Keep that in mind. Unlike MKUltra, which was exposed and later declassified, Project Monarch has remained completely classified, with any possible mention of the program and seemingly systematically redacted declassified documents pertaining to MKUltra. While I can't prove its existence, and therefore personally I'm still on the fence as to its full validity to be honest, there are some very interesting coincidences, shall we say that lead me to believe there is at least some validity to it. With that out of the way, monarch slaves, as they are allegedly referred to, are mainly used by organizations to carry out operations using patsies, trained to perform specific tasks who do not question orders, who do not remember performing these acts, and if discovered in any way, can be made with the use of a single word or phrase unalive themselves to cover any tracks. They are, therefore, the perfect scapegoat for high-profile assassinations, i.e. Sirhan Sirhan, as well as support for narratives and the perfect puppet performers for the music and entertainment industry to be used as purveyors of certain agendas. Monarch programmers cause intense trauma to subjects through the use of electroshock, torture, ritualistic and physical and sexual abuse, uh, drugs there's tons of stuff that goes to it it's very very similar and goes right in line with mk ultra this is done to cause the disassociation from reality often resulting in the formation of a secondary or more in some cases personality the subject's ability to disassociate is a major requirement 
and is apparently most readily found in children that come from families with multiple generations of abuse. Mental dissociation enables the handlers, as they are called, to create walled-off personalities or personas in the subject's mind, which can then be programmed and triggered at will. I don't want to get too buried in the details of monarch programming because we still have quite a bit to cover here, but I felt like some kind of background info might be necessary, especially for those of you who are first hearing about this at least. The name comes from the monarch butterfly, obviously, which begins its life as a worm, representing undeveloped potential. And after a period of cocooning, or programming in this analogy, is reborn as a butterfly the monarch slave, which is allegedly the reason that an endless list of celebrities and musicians can be found using monarch butterfly symbolism in photos, or just butterfly symbolism for that matter. To connect back to the mini ears in that art piece, you know, the only good celebrity is a dead one that I mentioned earlier, many believe that the larger aim is to control society through visual and auditory subliminal programming. Hence, why most people seem so willfully ignorant or oblivious to what is happening in the world around them, and so willing to believe what they're told by the TV screen. Which, for the record, really leads into a much longer conversation we need to have in the future, but uh, let's just go ahead and put a pin in that for now, and we'll circle back to it at some point. For now, and for the purposes of connecting a few more dots, just know that Disney is, allegedly, one of the main programmers in this endeavor, as they have a direct line into millions of little children's minds, as well as their parents. Could also be useful to note that many people, then or future, connections to the CIA were instrumental in helping Walt conquer Florida and to establish his little magical kingdom down there that operates largely outside of the laws of both Florida and the U.S., the CIA has also been instrumental in helping the Disney Corporation to continually skirt laws and gain ever-increasing power and influence. Again, though, this is a whole rabbit hole into itself, but monarch symbolism can be found in the vast majority of their movies and series and several former Disney stars have, if you haven't noticed, gone on to either continue in service of the agenda, seemingly go crazy, at least for a period of time, or suffer from an early death. It would take several episodes to really begin to explore all the connections and how Disney seems to be at the heart of the uh, public arm of this project, I guess we can say. But just know that there is a bounty of evidence out there and keep it in mind the next time you sit down and watch one of their movies, which now includes Marvel, Star Wars, and a vast empire of media properties, by the way, because they gobbled up Fox and several other things. So, is it possible that Monarch Program Gone Awry could explain some of these celebrity deaths? Could it have been behind at least a few musicians' downfalls and deaths? Maybe. Maybe not. However, the satanic element at the heart of the ritual abuse and the potential link of sacrifices in the name of Lucifer, or the dark magic that seems oddly prevalent within the music industry, simply can't be ignored or dismissed. Another element that links monarch programming, the occult, and celebrities is one-eye symbolism. Think back, or better yet, go and Google for yourself, uh, pictures of celebrities where one of their eyes is covered. It seems omnipresent in modern media, doesn't it? Why would that be? 
Have you ever felt compelled to just cover one of your eyes while having a picture taken? Does that seem like a natural thing to do to anybody? It seems almost as if some sort of centralized agenda or organization would have to be behind this in some sort of way, right? But what sort of power, wealth, and influence would be required for them to compel so many people from musicians and celebrities to politicians and public figures to all do this same pose. For all these media companies to all facilitate it and help to plaster it everywhere in all mediums, the more you see it, and trust me, now that I've brought it up to you, if you didn't before, you will definitely notice it everywhere. The more it begins to feel like a coordinated effort. I told you, we are going deep this season. Without dragging you through centuries of occult knowledge and secret societies using this symbolism, in short, it's believed to basically be a symbol representing the global elite. At this point in time, anyway. Essentially a way of saying, look who else we control. Personally, I would lean more towards it being uh, like a Masonic gesture. Kind of akin to the hand rested inside the front of the jacket signifying the hidden hand and signaling to the other initiates that they are part of the Brotherhood and thus working towards its aims. Uh, therefore, the one-eye symbolism would represent the eye of providence and communicate a similar message. We're all part of this club, and you're not. Masonic or global elite, they virtually merged at this point anyway. I don't want to get too far off track here, but surface-level Freemasonry isn't what its aims are truly about, and they align much more closely with the occult than they would like you to believe. Now, I'm not saying that your grandfather, as mine was, or your cousin Bill, whoever, who goes down to the local lodge is some depraved occultist. Most levels of masonry have zero idea about its true nature or its aims. I'm simply pointing out that the symbolism is drawn from the same source and for the same reasons. Now that we've traveled a little ways down the many rabbit holes that comprise this esoteric web of fame and the occult, I can't forget to circle back to something we briefly touched on earlier, the blood sacrifice and ritual murders. This is where we connect the final pieces between the music industry, occultism, and for the lack of a better term, the Illuminati. Yes, this is where we start to tiptoe towards possible crazy town, but just go with me on this for a minute, okay? It's been often said that there is a price for fame, but how big can that price tag get? Many in the industry of both music and Hollywood have spoken about going to that quote next level or the door behind the door of fame, essentially saying that you can get so rich and famous, but if you want to get to that real push, the one where they basically program the public to love you by shoving you down their throats, um, kind of like Taylor Swift, <clears throat> Uh, sorry, Swifties, please don't come for me. Then it's by invite only, and it comes at a high cost. Perhaps your own soul isn't enough. Maybe that just gets you to the party. Perhaps if you want to see what's behind the locked door, it's going to cost more. Like a sacrifice, to prove that you belong. To prove you're really willing all and do whatever you are told for this opportunity. Well, I can't say that I personally believe this, just because I deal in provable facts, typically. Uh, there is certainly no shortage of people who do, and some claim to have first-hand knowledge of it. So, I thought it was worth at least acknowledging in this. Have you ever noticed how right before someone gets super famous, 
their success starts to go through the roof. They seem to lose somebody close to them. Think Kanye and his mother, for an example. The internet has compiled a long list of these. But the first time this popped up on my radar, at least, that I can remember, was Dame Dash and Aaliyah. As for where this came from, um, I believe the first person that put that theory forward was Professor Griff of Public Enemy. Aaliyah's death was a bit suspect, to be honest. A known hesitant flyer on a plane that was suicidally overloaded with a pilot who was loaded to the gills himself on cocaine and more and with Damon Dash himself referring to her as the sacrificial lamb that is an actual quote uh, it was in regards to her and R. Kelly but to even call her that is kind of weird plus a biography that states she refused to go on the flight and only got on after being fed sleeping pills and then physically carried aboard it does raise some eyebrows Factor into this how Rockefeller Records was struggling at this time, and only after her death did the company really see its meteoric rise, and it's easy to see why this theory has gained so much traction. It's also said that, quote, they, let's just refer to this group as they, prefer to kill sacrifices using what they fear the most. Don't ask me why. Maybe they're just that jacked up, or maybe the higher the emotional uh, content of the death is the more points you get on the double scale i have no idea for Aaliyah, though that was allegedly flying so it was only fitting that she would go that way the whole career of Aaliyah is kind of a rabbit hole itself to be honest from being groomed by r kelly at like 14 or 15 to monarch style illuminati symbolism and one-eye photos of her own there is a lot to unpack there the takeaway however is that if you want to get to the big leagues, the 20 mil up club, it supposedly requires a blood sacrifice of allegiance, which many believe is just further indications that a satanic cabal of sorts controls the music industry and Hollywood as well, and possibly they always have. To complete this esoteric circle and bring us all the way back to the start, Faust may have been one of the earliest examples of nefarious bargain, but a long list of musicians and celebrities have either made this claim openly or been strongly connected to it ever since. Here are just a few examples that I found, but there are many, many more out there, and no doubt many, many more to come. Bob Dylan, in a 60 Minutes interview in 2005, strongly implied this to be the case to Ed Bradley, saying, quote, It goes back to the destiny thing. I made a bargain with it a long time ago, and I'm holding up my end. Um, actually, here is a clip from that interview, so you can just hear the whole thing for yourself. Tell me what you think. Still out here doing these songs, you know, you're still on tour. I do, but I don't take it for granted. Why do you still do it? Why are you still out here? Well, it goes back to the destiny thing. I mean, I made a bargain with it, you know, a long time ago, and I'm holding up my hand. What was your bargain? To get where um, I am now. Should I ask who you made the bargain with? <laughs> with, 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 you know, with the chief, uh, chief commander. On this earth? <laughs> and this earth and then, uh, and then in the world we can't see. Bob Dylan has been- And there's Katy Perry. 
Here's her admitting basically the exact same thing in an interview before pausing and then looking down in contemplation. Was she just joking? Was it a metaphor? You be the judge. You're doing really well now, but didn't you release a CD like almost 10 years ago? Um, yeah, I mean, I released a gospel record when I was 15 um, because I grew up in uh, you know, a household where all I ever did was listen to gospel music and my parents are both traveling ministers. And so I kind of sang about you know, what was going on in my life at 15 and that's how I got introduced to the music industry. I swear I wanted to be like the Amy Grant of music, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't work out and so I sold my soul to the devil. Next up, we have Little Uzi Vert. Repeat that name. Again. Again. Faster. Keep going. Now, he has also stated, uh, I sold my soul for you in a live video that he did before adding, and y'all are all coming with, right with me, you dummies. He's also talked about it on stage several times, insinuating that the crowd was also a part of it now. Um... There's a lot of clips of this out there. I, I didn't feel the need to insert it in, into this episode, but it, it's definitely easy to find because there's just a lot of him saying it. And I just didn't really have the time to do a compilation of all of them and put them together for this, but I, I assure you, you'll have no trouble finding him saying it if you look. Tons of other artists have mentioned this deal in their songs from quick metaphors to right out claiming it. Now, whether that's to add to the particular song or their well-crafted image trying to draw people in, you be the judge. Some examples would be Kesha's Dancing with the Devil, Jay-Z's Lucifer 9, Eminem states it in the song Say Goodbye to Hollywood, and a few others. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin has talked openly about Satanism, and the list goes on and on and on, but honestly, it only gets more speculative as it goes. There are tons of artists and celebrities who have talked about, performed lyrics about it, or joked about it, but have any of them really done it? Have they truly taken that literal or proverbial walk down to the crossroads at midnight and played a tune? Or was it all just a part of building a mystique around a persona? Or a metaphor for one of the things that one has to give up in the name of fame? Was it just a deadly combination of the excesses afforded and the drugs available that took down so many talented stars at around 27? The truth is, I don't know. I don't think any of us ever truly will either. I mean, unless you want to head down to the crossroads a little before midnight. Bring with you an instrument that you desire to master, of course. And don't forget a soul that you're willing to trade. And then, when that dark figure approaches you asking to tune you up, you take his deal for yourself. yourself, yourself. But I certainly wouldn't advise it. Anyway, that's about all I have time for this evening, guys. I want to thank all of you for coming back and deciding to join us for Season 2. Or if you're new, I really appreciate you showing up for the first time. I really hope that you enjoyed what you've heard. And I'll be back with you next Wednesday for BTR. And we'll kind of keep the season going from there. Got a lot of good stuff lined up. I'm really excited about it. I hope that you guys are excited about it. Don't forget to leave me something in the Q&A. Um, use the poll. There's also a voice message option, which I always forget to plug this. But uh, it's, it's super cool. It's really easy to use. If you're on the Spotify page, down below the description, there should be a little thing you can click. 
and it'll allow you to leave a voice message. I would love to get some of those. Uh, I want to put a bunch together and then play them on an episode at some point. If you've got any questions for me, feel free to ask away. I'll be happy to answer anything I can. I'll get a little more in depth on a couple of little points on the BTR Wednesday, so be sure to tune in for that one. And I'll talk to you all again real soon on the next Clandestine Radio.